You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Annie here for the first week in the Solidarity Breakfast summer season here on 3CR Community Radio. Over the next four weeks, we will hear some new material and some striking words from over the past year that keeps alive the important issues of our times. Today we hear from Jacob Gritch from Friday Rave here on 3CR who spoke at the last week's Sunday Palestine Solidarity Rally here in Melbourne. He calls people to join him in a motorcade, the second along Sydney Road. Let there be more than the 50 cars at the inaugural motorcade a few weeks ago. Today along Sydney Road for Palestine. We followed Jacob with a word from Lana who was also speaking at the rally, uh, who has been part of the constant vigil for Palestine on the steps of Victorian Parliament. We go to the launch of Boris Frankel's book, No Country for Idealists, down at Readings in St Kilda, where Jeff Sparrow has a chat with Boris Frankel about his early life and how his family decided to go back to Russia in 1956 against the general tide. We change direction to mark the end of COP28, where the mainstream media seems to be publicising the futility and craven stance of the fossil fuel corporations, who seem to believe the actual naming of fossil fuels as a threat to life on Earth in official documents is a step in the right direction. Well, it might be, but we hear from Amelia from the Freedom Socialist who spoke up at the recent Student for Climate rally in Melbourne who expresses a different view. We finish off with Sue Bolton, Mary Beck, Socialist Councillor, who was speaking at the National Rally for Public Housing held on a very rainy Melbourne day a week ago. It is a call for action and before we go to some messages I will let you know about the Save Our Public Housing rally today, Saturday the 23rd of December 2pm behind 140 Brunswick Street Tower. If you want more information about that go to 0447 506 625. That's 0447 506 625 for information about the Save Our Public Housing Rally that's on today at 2. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, 
occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. As the genocidal attack on Gaza continues with targeted attacks on civilians, journalists, doctors and other medical personnel, it it was reported that the Israeli military killed three hostages, three young men who were apparently sitting with the white flag. They killed their own people this week. Thousands continue to rally calling for a ceasefire and end to occupation. At the Melbourne rally at the State Library Step Sunday, Jacob Gretsch spoke. He is organising another motorcade along Sydney Road this Saturday, meeting at Faulkner Cemetery. Here is Jacob. We're joined by our first speaker today, Jacob Goetsch. And for those that don't know, Jacob has been in charge of the audio for the past uh, nine weeks in a row and been a staunch, staunch supporter of Palestine for so long. He's from Renegade Activists. He's a long-time campaigner on peace and justice, focusing on Australian militarism. He's been actively supporting the struggle for Palestine for longer than I've been alive, which tells you how old he is. So a big round of applause to Jacob. Thanks, brother. And first of all, I want to get one thing, I want to correct one thing NASA said. I'm not in charge of the sound crew, we're a collective, we all work together. No leaders, no masters. But we look, we look around and it's, you can't not help but be aware that Christmas is coming up. That's obviously people away and big ups to everyone who made it here today, regardless of the stupid season, a season where we're told to commemorate the birth of a kid in Palestine 2,000 years ago to displaced parents born in a barn who grew up to overturn the tables of the bankers and tell his leaders that they were spineless liars and hypocrites and they were all going to burn in hell. And I'd like to think that I'm honouring a bit of my own Catholic upbringing by telling our own governments and leaders that they're a bunch of spineless liars and hypocrites and they're all going to burn in hell too. Because the Australian government, the Australian government, not just the Australian government, the Victorian government, is not just idly turning a blind eye to the attempted genocide in Palestine. They are actively supporting it. And you talk about Christmas, you look around at the Christmas decorations. One of the things we always see in the Christmas decorations is a star, a star that's meant to represent the star of Bethlehem, a village in Palestine that told the three wise guys where Bethlehem was. And I say any wise person seeing a fresh light, an unusual light, over Palestine this Christmas would recoil in horror, in abject horror at what it represented. Whether it's a white phosphorus trail, whether it's the afterglow of a bomb, 
or whether it's the OFAC or the AMOS military satellites, there are plenty of unusual lights above Palestine this Christmas. And I want to talk to you about one of those lights. The Orion 5 satellite, which isn't just above Palestine, it's just to the east. Just to the east of Palestine. It's sitting up there 35,000 kilometres up in the air. And what it's doing, well, when it was launched, we were told it was to monitor for Soviet missile launches. But we now know that 85% of its capability is used to intercept telecommunications, radios, mobile phones, internet connections, everything in Palestine. And that information is brought not down to Israel, it's brought down to the ground here in Australia at Pine Gap, just outside of Alice Springs. And from there it goes straight to Langley, Virginia, to the CIA headquarters. But not only that, we found out 10 years ago from Edward Snowden's revelations that every piece of raw data downloaded through Pine Gap is given directly, without redaction, to the Israeli Signals Directorate. Every last piece of it. And the Australian government claims that it's fully aware and fully in agreement with full knowledge and concurrence, is the term they use, with everything that happens at Pine Gap. The Australian government is happy and in agreement with the Israeli government receiving targeting information downloaded through Pine Gap. And it's not just coming through Pine Gap. It comes down to Melbourne, where our own security agencies have a crack at it too. Up here in the Telstra building. Okay? Everyone has a crack at it. In, in fact, Australia is such a secretive government the most secretive government in Western democracy that I could be taken away for six months without trial just for telling you that. We keep the secrets. The people in Palestine are dying because it is all a secret. But now is not the time to remain silent. It's coming up to Christmas and you need to make some noise. So I want to tell you a couple of facts. So first of all, when you hear the Israeli Ministry of Propaganda say that they know where Hamas leaders, they know where so-called terrorists are hiding, they know where the tunnels are, the only way they can know this is through the telemetry signals intelligence downloaded through Pine Gap. By saying they know where the signals are, they are admitting that this is where they're getting their information from. And we need to join the dots and see who's responsible for this. And it's not just targeting information. We also provide arms sales. Now, I tell you, we're the most secretive democracy. Our arms sales regimen is the most secretive in the world. I can find out more information about China's and Russia's arms exports than I can about Australia. And I've been researching this for 30 or 40 years now. I know where to look and you still can't find it out. But we do know just a few facts that I'm going to tell you about. And the first fact is that the Israeli government has acknowledged, it has admitted, it has in fact boasted that they're using F-35s, as well as F-15s, but F-35s to drop bombs on Gaza. We also know 
that for every F-35 operating in the world, whether it's in Israel, Australia, America, Italy, France, <coughs> wherever, has parts made in Australia from over 70 companies and 65% of those parts are manufactured here in Victoria. We know that when we export them, we export them to three spare parts holding yards, one in the Netherlands, one in the USA, one here in Newcastle. But even when we export to Newcastle, we export them to the United States because the United States controls the warehouse in Newcastle. And from there, we're not allowed to know, we're not told, we have no right to know where the parts are going, who they'll be used by and who they'll be used on. Well, we know where they're being used on. And the last thing I want to tell you, the obvious question is, who are these companies? Who are they? You drive down the road. Anybody here live in Dandenong or down Dandenong Way? Dandenong over here, we've got a mob called A.W. Bell. <coughs> Abbots Road, South Dandenong. They're the only people anywhere in the world that make the casings and controls for the electronic warfare countermeasures on every F-35, including the ones being used to kill Palestinians. They're being made on Abbots Road and Dandenong. Who, who, lives, around, who lives around Heidelberg, Greensborough? Right, we've got Lover Technologies up on Parra Road who make many small parts for the Pratt & Whitney engines and they include the titanium keels. You can't steer these things anywhere in the world without the parts made up on Parra Road in Greensboro. Yeah. Down Moorabbin on the peninsula, you've got Morand. I'm not going to go through them all. You've got Morand who make the engine lifts and who source parts from all over the country, including from a mob called Quickstep in Bankstown, just around the corner from the big mosque who make the tail fins for these F-35s. There are too many, but I'm going to leave you with one more. We're talking about dropping bombs from these things. Now imagine, when you're dropping the bombs, the doors, the Bombay doors, open. Those doors are controlled by hinges and latches, which are made by a mob wherever the F-35 is operating in the world those bomb doors that are releasing the bombs on the people of Gaza are made by a mob called Rosebank Engineering at 836 Mountain Highway in Bayswater. Many of you pass by it every day. It's one thing to think about militarism, but it's another thing to think of the companies who profit from the attacks on Gaza who determine Australian foreign policy because they're outside the law because we're not even allowed to know what they make or who they sell it to. I am breaking the law now by telling you this information, but now is not the time to remain silent. It's time to expose the military-industrial complex. It's time to expose Australia's role and it's time to stop the bullshit that Australia is a harmless player and the worst thing we're doing is sitting on our hands. We are actively involved in every bomb that lands on Palestine. So it's not the time to remain silent. I know some of you, most of you probably, have been at 
rallies, 10 Sunday rallies. Our audio cue, Renegade Solidarity Audio Force, give them a shout out. We've done about 50 or 60 rallies since October the 7th and we're going to keep making rallies. We're going to motorcade next Saturday, midday at Faulkner, where we are going to, all this PA gear you hear, see, see here, is going to be strapped to the tops of utes and buses. We're going to make a noise all the way down Sydney Road. It's not the time to remain silent. Come to the motorcade, come to the rally, come next week, come the next week after, come the week after that. Every time, everywhere in Melbourne, from our rivers to our sea until Palestine is free. From the river to the sea. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. At last Sunday's Palestine Solidarity Rally in Melbourne, Lana spoke. She's part of the ongoing vigil that has been set up on the steps of Victorian Parliament. The next speaker is Lana. She's I'm a non-based Palestinian and Mauritian organiser, artist, disability support worker and social work student. Um, Lana has been involved with the sit Intifada for the last six weeks. They've occupied the steps of parliament in protest of our government's failure to demand the end of the brutal occupation and siege of Palestine. Welcome, Lana. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. This is my bodyguard for today, Janine. I would like to begin by acknowledging the forever custodians of this land on which we are meeting today, the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend my acknowledgement to the elders and ancestors of all those in the shared struggle. I'd like to acknowledge the continuing sovereignty and the sovereignty of all Indigenous peoples. I acknowledge that as a settler uninvited on these lands, it is my duty to engage in the practice of decolonization for the liberation of all mob living in so-called Australia. And that includes paying the rent. I can't stand here in front of you today and talk about the plight of my people while ignoring and benefiting off the plight of another indigenous group on this land. To our First Nations brothers and sisters, you have seen birthing trees uprooted for roads. We have seen olive trees burnt for settlements. That is our DNA being colonised. That is the very essence of our identities being stripped away from us. Our struggles are interconnected and the way we think about these struggles must inform the way we move through this world what we buy, who we engage with, who we elect in positions of power, how we work to dismantle that power. It is a daily practice, and that practice in itself is resistance. Resistance to everything we have been taught to be, to act, to consume, to conform to from the West, at the expense of our own cultures, our own values, our own traditions. Enough! This morning, I, I woke up angry, and it's not the anger I've been carrying every day for the past few months. It's not the anger I've felt over a lifetime of seeing my people subjected to genocide, apartheid, and ethnic cleansing. It is the anger that I have to now come up here and speak to you, speak to words that have already been shared by people who came before me, by my ancestors, by my community, 
by thought leaders in this space, by Indigenous voices globally speaking out against their oppressors. These words aren't new. They are but a combination of sentiments that already exist throughout time and space. They are words that have fallen on closed minds, words that have never penetrated an apathetic soul. How many more times must we bear the unbearable before we decide it's enough? What we are seeing right now is a genocide, but it is not the first genocide. Many of us gathered here today come from a legacy of ongoing genocide, a legacy of oppression, and that is why we are here. My parents met because of the impact of colonization. My brothers and I are a product of displacement from two different countries, but from the same colonial system. When we stop screaming, stop marching, stop fighting, we tell our oppressors that we will only fight when it's convenient, that we will stop resisting and partake in your consumerist, capitalist, festive season. I say this as someone born as a, as a Christian Palestinian, that if Christmas is canceled in the birthplace of Jesus, it is canceled everywhere. One of the things that we have learned from Ammo Ihab and the other uncles in the Sit Intifada is a foundational teaching of the Quran. You never start a fight, but it is your duty to fight back. As Palestinians, we do not start fights, but we do finish them. So I want to ask you, what do you do in the face of continued indifference? Do we give up? No. Do we stay silent? No. Do we submit? No. But do we scream louder? Yes. Do we fight back? Yes. Do we resist? Yes. Our weapon against our oppressors is our community and our community is our resistance. When we use our collective voice, our collective power to say it, it is not business as usual when there are genocides happening in Palestine and all over the world, that is our resistance. When we take to the streets to demand not a ceasefire but a free Palestine and land back, that is our resistance. When we march to the doorsteps of our politicians and call them out on their racist policies, and positions and demand that they represent us fairly. That is our resistance. When we strike and withhold our labor from this colonial project, from the machine that they've built to keep us complicit, that is our resistance. Freedom has never come from the top. It starts here from the hearts of the governed and the hearts of the oppressed. The history of liberation is a history of resistance. So to those of you who have been unrelenting in your conviction for a free Palestine, those who have been showing up every Sunday, when you go home tonight and think about the people who have given up their lives for us to learn this lesson, sit in your grief, use that grief, turn it into a fuel and ignite a fire inside of you. Let us flam the flames with community and build that fire together. We do this work together. I send my love and strength to those resisting their oppressors worldwide by any means necessary.
This, um, this chan has been making its way around so-called Australia over the last few months, but I think it perfectly sums up the interconnectedness of our struggles here and across the sea. So when Janine says, from the river to the sea, you say, always was, always will be. From the river to the sea. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You were the one, you were the one, you were the one. 
You are back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. Earlier this month, academic and scholar, writer, Boris Frankel, launched his autobiographical account of his young life called No Country for Idealists, The Making of a Family of Subversives, published by Green Meadows and available everywhere you buy a book in any format. It is so popular. I went down to reading St Kilda for the launch where Jeff Sparrow spoke to Boris Frankel. Now this book is in a sense a prequel to what I become later on (laughs) and it's a formative experience. I had very little to uh, do with the decision to go back to the Soviet Union. That was my father's decision and it was a very divisive issue because my mother didn't really want to go. They'd both come to a Melbourne in 1937 and 1938 and uh, she was not Russian she was from Poland and Belarusian and so for her it was a choice of either splitting the family and staying in in Melbourne or keeping the family together and going to the Soviet Union even though they were both active communists in a sense believing in it even though they were not official members of the party at that time so that's part of the reason why it starts. It doesn't start there, but that's one of them. When I was reading the book, one of the great pleasures of it was its invocation of the vanished world of the inner city left yes. of the 1940s and the 1950s. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. If we were to jump into a time machine and travel back to Carlton in the late 1940s, how would the Jewish community we would find then differ from the Jewish community we know today? Well, uh, my parents lived in inner city, the northern suburbs in Fitzroy and Carlton when they arrived. They worked in factories around that area. They were working class, self-educated communists of that period. So in contrast to, say, the post-war period where you have students and in, you know various uh, academics and others who mainly made up many of the party members in that period the party was made up of of real working class self-educated people who uh, learned to read and they were very keen on reading and, and reading books and educating themselves the, the paradoxical situation between the 40s and early 50s and today's Jewish community is that North Carlton was called Little Jerusalem, but it was a a predominantly secular community. And there were all these uh, communists, Bundists, uh, members of the uh, Labour Party. There were religious people, but all the people that kind of gathered at the Kadima in uh, Ligon Street, which, of course, many years later became the Aeolian uh, Club, uh, Santa Maria, the most prominent member from the Aeolian <laughs> Islands, uh, and they moved to Elstonwick. But prior to that, Carlton was uh, very much a secular, politically left Jewish community. And the, the real difference is that everybody, paradoxically, supported the founding of Israel in 1947-40. Even Trotskyists, can you believe it? The only ones who opposed it, the only ones who opposed it were the Bundists, who had been anti-Zionists from the early decades. And so it's paradoxical to see Bundists today, like Michael, who came from a Bundist background, Michael Gawenda, 
who come out and support Israel, whereas at that time, most of the people supported. You know, one of the reasons was that uh, Stalin was the leading supporter of the founding of Israel. And without Stalin's help sending arms to the 700,000 uh, new Israelis via Czechoslovakia that were sec secretly sl smuggled in, the new state of Israel would not have probably survived because they were attacked by 27 to 29 million Arab countries at that time. So, and, and well before Donald Trump moved, wanted to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 2018, Stalin was the first person to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It was a totally different era then. And it was when uh, the Soviet Union changed its policies towards Israel because it supported the Arab states, Nasser had come to power in Egypt and so forth, that the actual uh, changing role of Jews in Melbourne started to become evident. And so, in many ways, the Jewish community in Australia is a microcosm of the cultural and social changes of the larger society. And as many Jews ceased to work in factories and offices or whatever and became uh, invested in, you know, got their little businesses and real estate and that, they became more affluent. And even though they carried on left traditions, a minority, most of them became quite conservative. And that's the story. Describe your mother coming to Australia via Paris, and there is a terrific scene in the book where she passes, having arrived in Melbourne, she passes through the inner city and she is aghast at this parochial backward place <laughs> at which she's arrived. And I've read similar accounts from other memoirs of uh, European immigrants to Australia. So, so my question to you is, what role did the Communist Party play in fulfilling the cultural aspirations of people like your mother and and your father? How, how, how did they fill that niche? Well, my mother was raised as a Bundist in Grodno in Belarus, but uh, the Bundist community was fairly small in Melbourne and so she became active in the Communist Party. And she, there is one or, one or two photos that shows her uh, being part of the large Eureka Youth League and Young Communist League camps that were at Barwon Heads or at Hillsville or various other places. And it provided a, a totality of uh, kind of life for people in that it was both cultural, political, the social network was developed and people really knew uh, one another through that network. <laughs> Yes, it was significant, and of course, my father, not of course, I discovered this, he acquired a Soviet passport in 1947, and the Communist Party in the Carlton branch said, you can't be a member anymore, because we don't want anybody that's not an Australian citizen to be, to, for us to be tarred you know, with the brush of being uh, agents of Moscow. So even though he ceased being an official member of the Communist Party, he was still very active. And that, of course, he harboured this desire for many decades to return back to his boyhood catch in Crimea. In 1956, your father decides that he wants to take the entire family from Melbourne to the Soviet Union. Now, this is not 
unknown. There are lots of narratives of people in the West deciding that they want to become part of the so-called worker state. A lot of those narratives are significantly earlier, and this is quite late for that sort of rosy idealism about the Soviet Union. What I found particularly fascinating was your subsequent discovery that your mother was quite hostile to this idea and had argued stridently against the proposal of your father to take the family back to the Soviet Union. So I wonder if you could tell us what it was about your father's politics that made him susceptible to Stalin's propaganda as late as 1956, and conversely, what it was about your mother that made her able to see through that, at least to some degree? Well, I wouldn't say that she was able to see through it entirely, because she also believed that the Soviet Union was the society of the future. But she was, I suppose, more skeptical than my father. And as he des described himself, I was a maniac, he said. <laughs> I was a fanatic. And, and, and he was blind. We left after Khrushchev's secret speech in early 1956. But it was not known in this country. And when ASIO came to our place in East St Kilda, under the guise of wanting to buy Russian records, a conversation uh, cropped up about uh, whether uh, Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. And my father said with most of the uh, people in the Communist Party at the time, it's just lies from the capitalist press. It couldn't be true. Uh, and it, the real story came out several months later. By that time, we were already in the Soviet Union. <laughs> and, uh, so it is an interesting account of delusions. He genuinely, because my father was part of the Australian Soviet Friendship Society, and he actively organized each Sunday evening Soviet films at the Carlton Bug House. And he taught Russian to students uh, alongside um, what's her name, uh, uh, Nina Christensen, who was herself Russian, and she set up the Russian language department at the University of Melbourne, but the two of them would teach Russian. And this book is really about the unknown people. My father wasn't known, but ASIO and the, and the government all knew him very well, and this book is based on hundreds of files from the government departments that, and the other thing is, it raised a question about how do you write about people who are relatively unknown? Most history of the left of the communist or other left parties is really often focuses on their kings and queens and the princes and rather than on ordinary people in the party. There are other books that write history from below and that is based on largely oral history, interviews with former or current members trying to, to get that. But if there is no oral history, how do you actually write? And it's there, there where memoirs become very important about if you've lived through certain experiences. And that's why the book is both a combination of biography, personal memoir, and a lot of historical background detail. Well, that brings me to my next point. So in 1956, you and your family travelled to the Soviet Union. One of the points you make in the book is that there are lots, lots, there are 
many accounts of life in the Soviet Union in the 20s and the 30s, and there are comparatively many accounts of the final years of the Soviet Union, but that period in the 50s, which really was the year in which the Soviet Union established itself as a superpower, is relatively underrepresented both in the academic and popular literature. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it was actually like to be in the Soviet Union during the Khrushchev era. Era. Well, let me simply say that we were incredibly lucky to arrive three years after Stalin died. Because would, this book would never have been written. And my father and mother would never have seen daylight. And, and we came in a period where the terror was being closed down. That is not to say that our encounters with many of the local and regional officials there was a mixture. Some were the old Stalinists, and as they said to us, if I had my choice, I'd put you against the wall and shoot you, instead of you know, giving you the right to leave. So, you know, this, and the others were living in a kind of, the books, as I say, and the book is not really, our experience of the Soviet Union was not like the kind of um, fictional or theoretical positions that George Orwell and others depicted in 1984. The Soviet Union at the time was a very vibrant society. Vibrant in the sense that there were infinitely more political jokes and critique of the government than you would find in any Western capitalist society. I'm talking about at everyday level. Every day and every week people were saying something that was incredibly critical. But of course, they said it privately. It was not, you know, permitted to say it publicly. And so these years from 1956 to 1960 were the transitional years. And as you, you mentioned, uh, Jeff, much more has been written about the Brezhnev years or the Stalin years or the Gorbachev years, but very little on those years in the late 50s. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR. We're listening to a chat between Jeff Sparrow and writer-academic Boris Frankel about his book No Country for Idealists, The Making of a Family of Subversives, launched earlier this month. I, I'm interested in the dynamic within your family life. I remember when I was a kid and my parents wanted to be from one suburb to the next and I found that to be absolutely unbearable. Your parents moved you from not only one country but one social system to the next. And at the same time, your parents were divided about whether this was a good idea or, or not. Once you, found, once you arrived there, you discovered it was actually a terrible idea. So how did your family stay together with all of these tensions and how did they play out when you were there in the Soviet Union? Well, it only took a matter of a couple of weeks before my... We were recognised virtually in the first day or two, but it took my father a couple of weeks. He still believed, oh, things couldn't be this bad. It'll prove, wait, wait till we get to so-and-so. And then after the penny dropped, we all agreed that we were going to band together and develop a strategy of how to get out of the country. <laughs> of course, it took us four years to get out, only because we were born in Australia. And it took another three years for the Australian government to let my father back. And what people don't realise is that they talk about the contrast between 
the free world and totalitarianism, but in reality, the Russians had already wanted to let us out, but Menzies and his government under ASIO, under Spry, refused to let us back in. And that was the paradoxical situation. Uh, so for those who haven't lived through, didn't live through the Menzies period, it was a very authoritarian regime. And uh, you couldn't read things, you couldn't see things. Uh, most people, as I mentioned in the book, what I found particularly shocking is that each year from 1951 until 1971, ASIO, in conjunction with military intelligence, fearing the outbreak of a new war, had a list of between 11,000 at the peak and 5,000 men, women and children to be rounded up in detention camps or concentration camps. And this list was only known to the Prime Minister the Minister for Defence, the Minister for Immigration, and the Attorney General covering ASIO. The whole Cabinet didn't know, because if the whole Cabinet knew that these lists were there, there would have been absolute, that would have been a public scandal. And Australia has a long history that if your name was Italian or German or whatever, you were locked up in the First and Second World War as a so-called enemy, even though you, the, the real fascists were not necessarily locked up. Yeah. So that's, that's the strange thing about Australian history. And today, when you read that, and migrant, all the heads of the migrant communities, children, they were all on the list. We don't know whether our family was on the list of, or not. Probably. <laughs> Well, to, to, to follow on from that, I feel like a lot of people, and in fact you, you describe um, this in the book, a lot of people would have concluded the Australian governments during the Cold War would have been absolutely thrilled to have got a family who had originally thought the Soviet Union was a workers' paradise and then been disenchanted to come back to Australia. This would have seemed, you would have thought, to be a great propaganda victory. But in fact, that wasn't the conclusion that they drew at all. They weren't keen to get you back. Why was that? Well, uh, just to slightly correct that, the archive documents reveal that there were real debates inside immigration and PM's department external between those uh, deputy secretaries and others who said, we want them back because it'll be a coup. You know, we can uh, publicise. And Alexander Downer, not senior, the far, and Menzies, and of course Spry, mainly uh, head of ASIO, they said, no, we can't afford, these people constitute a real threat. And they made a blank, you know, kind of thing, we will not permit other families that left to go to the Soviet Union to return. And it took, I won't reveal the thing, but it took our, my sister and I, a particular escapade in Moscow uh, that changed the whole direction of our ability to, um, to leave. So you, um, spoiler alert, you eventually made it back to Australia and somewhat, some years later your father did as well. I'm interested in how your father assimilated this experience. When he was back in Australia and he was dealing with his old communist acquaintances, how did he put this all together in his mind, that the place that he had thought 
representative of Workers Paradise had turned out to be completely opposite to what he's expected. He's now back in Australia. How does that work out for him? Well, from genuinely believing that it was a good thing for us to go to the Soviet Union because we would get a real good education compared to the education we got at Brighton Road State School uh, and that we would get all the culture and everything. From believing that and that the work, this was the worker state, to total disillusionment with, with politics. And then by the time he returned, he was only a young man, relatively speaking, of about 55 going on 56, 55, 53, beg your pardon, Fifty-five, and he um, couldn't—he couldn't mix with the right wing. He never became right wing, but he refused to mix with the old people that he knew on the left in the Australia Soviet and the Communist Party and so forth, because he still, as he said to Asia, they're maniacs and like me. But he said, if communism becomes a genuine form in the future and becomes really cooperative and shares all these things, then I might become a communist again. But at the moment, you know, and they were shocked about this, you know, and this report, you know, went up and they refused to give him naturalisation when he applied until the last year of his life, when a spry was gone and a new head of ASIO was there. But there was a real vendetta between... Charles Spry, the head of ASIO, and my father. And we, we were subversives. And you'll see in the report, even we children were regarded as subversive because they reported that we were going around telling all the other kids that there's no God, there's no Father Christmas, <laughs> and, and so forth. And this is all written, you know, these people are undermining the social structure. <laughs> Well, that brings me to something that I was wondering about the entire time when I was reading it, which is to do with your own politics, because a lot of people who've had a, a similar experience to that would have ended up on the Cold War, right? In fact, there's no shortage of accounts of God that failed narratives, people going to the Soviet Union, yep. thinking it's going to be terrific, coming back and then deciding, okay, communism is a failure, I'm moving to the Cold War, right? You obviously didn't do that, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. Why not? Well, I felt there were, the, there were essentially three types, three groups. The uh, stringent, virulent anti-communists from their experience. The people who retreated uh, to music like my father did or tending your garden like others. And then there were the third group who tried to learn from the experiences, because both communism was a communist uh, Soviet Union was a mockery of socialism, and capitalism was also uh, inherently against any form of equality and all the other aspects. And so I took that third path, and I learned a lot by working for six years before I went to university. So it was at working full-time in factories and offices and stores and all the rest of the things, that I saw both sides of the class structure in Australia. And, and it's only through those experiences that they, and the Soviet Union that enriched me politically, even though we suffered a lot while we were there. So it's... Um, 
that's part of the reason. And so uh, I was very lucky to be able to go to university in 1966. And at that point in time, for most people who are not aware, 82% of people in Australia between the ages of 18 and 24 had not even finished high school. This was a country that was profoundly uneducated in the form. And it was only... And the Whitlam years never made up for that, even though they... But when you think of over 80% had not gone to finished high school and only about 3% of males and about 15 to 2% of females had gone to uni, university prior to that. So it was a, a society that it helps explain why the arts are so impoverished in this country, uh, why science is so neglected, because the level of education and the support for governments who could ignore education, the myth that Menzies did fantastic things for building up uh, education, was nonsense. We ranked at the end of the Menzies years and the Gordon and McMahon years, we ranked next to Turkey on the OECD ladder in terms of level of poor level of, of expenditure. And so it, it, we've never recovered to this very day, despite the attempts of governments to increase levels of education. Now we have the other problem. We have plenty of people in formal education, but the humanities and the sciences are in a parlous state. So we've gone from one extreme to the other. Your title, of course, is double-edged. No country for idealists refers to the Soviet Union, but also refers to the Australia of the 1950s. Obvious question is, Australia 923, is it a country for idealists? I don't know about 1923, but 2023. <laughs> <laughs> 1923 is a much better time. <laughs> um, yes, definitely. I mean, the ideas, what's happened to our public institutions uh, in the past 30 years is testimony to the fact that to be an idealist, to hope for something better in this country, puts you very much in a tiny minority. We think, you know, we're part of a growing majority, but those days are yet to emerge. and. We are still in a country that values the dollar and the practical skills much more than ideals. So we've got a long struggle ahead. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates, and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos, and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Radio. 
on Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR. We change direction to mark the end of COP28, where the mainstream media, as I've already said, seems to think that it's a major step forward that official documents are now naming fossil fuel. Uh, And uh, as Kevin Healy last week pointed out, it seemed remarkable that they've had 28 COPs and this is the first time they've mentioned fossil fuel which is the cause of the demise of life on Earth as we know it. We hear now from Amelia from the Freedom Socialists who spoke up at the recent Student for Climate rally in Melbourne who expresses her view on the matter. First up, I think we've got Amalia. Amalia, do you want to come up? I can't find them. There they go. Um, I'll begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this strike takes place. Um, I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. My name is Amalia and today I speak for the Warren Student Union. But I also, I also wish to draw attention to the presence of United for Eco-Socialism, a new united front which currently incorporates the Revolutionary Communist Organization and the Freedom Socialist Party. We gather here because we know that climate change is irrevocably damaging our planet, that it is irrevocably tainting our future. We have watched the tremendous damage of floods and bushfires, which are increasingly becoming our new reality. We have observed these effects globally, in our own backyards and in every continent, devastating those who omit the least. But it is no longer a matter of highlighting climate change as a devastatingly pertinent issue. It is no longer a matter of pleading with the corporations and governments which are driving our destruction. We have been striking since 2019, but we fundamentally need to recognize our power. We gather here, we gather here because we know that this power is manifest in our unity. Separately, we are mere young people, but together we are a tremendous force. We boldly demonstrate that force today. We have demonstrated that force as we have marched here together. But a 
again, we have done this before. We have marched together before and the right people have not listened. They have only pretended to listen. Our future remains in crisis. Fundamentally, capitalism continues to rule over our so-called democracy. In 2022, the Australian government gave fossil fuel industries over $11 billion. This literally lowered their costs for production and transportation. And in that same year, Australian fossil fuel projects made a profit of $140 billion. The government is literally assisting these corporations in ruining our planet. The minority continues to triumph over the majority. Corporations continue to force the exploitation of our future. Our past pleas have been heard, but they have been dismissed and actively suppressed. Ultimately, our pleas are less convincing than the pleas of money. Our pleas are less forceful than the demands of capitalism. So what do we do when faced with silence? What must we do? We do not plead with capitalism. We do not beg for compromise. We force action. We do not become hopeless, for we cannot afford to be hopeless. We cannot afford to be complacent. We cannot afford to be still. So we cannot just go home tonight and forget our unity and our power and the disgusting destruction of our planet. We must remember the ceaseless destruction of nature. We must remember the ceaseless, veiled murder of indigenous people, of children, of workers. We cannot allow ourselves to forget. We have felt our power today, but we cannot stop at simple rallies. We must organize until the sheer scope of our power overwhelms all resistance. We must organize so as to desecrate all resistance and let it fall at our feet. The sheer, the sheer force of youth has astonishing power if only we harness it regularly and properly with our organization. And what does this organization look like? It can look like student unions, like the Warren Student Union. Um, because unions are not for workplaces, student unions are not just for universities. At Warren Senior Campus and at Northgate High School, we have already established student unions and the potential is tangible. We have the infrastructure to forcefully confront issues within our own schools. We do not need to stay silent and inactive when our issues are not addressed. How However, to halt Australia's role in the ceaseless advancement of the climate crisis, we need to be forceful. We need to organise across the entire school system. We need to establish communications and unity across schools. And that involves the action of every student here. We cannot remain isolated, for we need drastic and prompt change. We must 
must unite as students, but we must also unite with others. We must unite with workers. We must unite with First Nations people. We must unite and confront the capitalists who have been allowed to desecrate our planet. We need ongoing collaboration and solidarity and might. We need this so as to preserve our planet and to preserve our future. So as you leave this rally, remember that you should be angry. Become enraged by the fact that our planet burns while capitalists rake in billions. Become radicalized. Make the decision now to reject complicity. Step away from the rally knowing your power. Step away from the rally knowing that your power lies in your ability to disrupt the system. Foremost, do not let today be the extent of your action. Unionize, strike, educate, tear down the capitalist structures of hungry planet-destroying corporations. Remember that our future depends on it. Remember that you are not alone in this struggle. System change, not climate change. System change, not climate change. Hi, my name is Courtney Barnett and you're listening to 3CR, the voice of dissent. Okay, everybody. How are you going? Okay. Woo! Um, it's times like these I wish I could be hiding behind a musical instrument because I'm so naked up here with just my words, but, you know, I'll just grin and bear it. Um, how many words are there for sanity? One, exactly. How many words are there for madness? This is an... That's right, and, and here we go, a thesaurus of madness. Being the mad woman, I am also a lunatic, a maddie, a mental case, a bedlamite, a screwball, a nut, a loon, a loony, a madcap, a mad dog, a psychopath, a maniac, an hysteric, a psychotic, a manic depressive, a megalomaniac, a pyromaniac, a kleptomaniac, a crackpot, an eccentric, an oddity, an idiot, a basket case, demented, moonstruck, hazy, unhinged, dippy, loopy, distracted, pixie led, a scatterbrain, certifiable, crazy, loco, psycho, a nutter, possessed, fevered, bonkers, obsessed, bedeviled, tropo, starkers, schizo, potty, nuts, daft, dilly, a crack brain, a fruitcake, touched. <laughs> Being insane, I suffer from mental illness, psychiatric illness, brain damage, unsoundness of mind, alienation, lunacy, madness, mental derangement, mental instability, abnormal psychology, loss of reason, intellectual unbalance, mental decay, a darkened mind, a troubled brain, a deranged intellect, nerves, imbecility, cretinism, morosis, feeble-mindedness, queerness, having a screw loose, bats in the belfry, rats in the upper story, nervous breakdowns. Being as I am, mad that is, I must be, bananas, crackers, a camel short of a caravan, a ball short of an over, a pad short of a kit, not in my right mind, bereft of reason, deprived of my wits, 
As mad as a cut snake, a tinny short of a slab, diseased in the mind. As mad as a hatter, wielded in my wits, not the full quid. A brick short of a load, off my rocker, round the bend, a candidate for bedlam. Foaming at the mouth, as mad as a meat axe up the pole. A sandwich short of a picnic out of my tree, off my face, off my block. Over the edge, off my saucer, a shilling short of a pound, as silly as a wheel. Off my trolley, as mad as a two-bob watch, a shingle short, and I have a kangaroo loose in the top paddock. <laughs> I haven't finished. <laughs> Being wild and distraught, I live in a madhouse, a mental home, a mental hospital, an asylum, a lunatic asylum, an insane asylum, bedlam, a booby hatch, the loony bin, a nut house. A bug house, a psychiatric hospital, the rat house, a giggle factory, the rat factory, the funny farm. I am many things in many places, fool that I may be, mad that I may be. I am, in all my precarious guises, the creation of a cruel mind. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I belong You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR Community Radio. We finish off with Sue Bolton, Mary Beck, Socialist Councillor, who was speaking at the National Rally for Public Housing held on a very rainy Melbourne day a week ago. It is a call for action. First of all, we need to make our voices heard. What do we want? Save public housing. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Save public housing. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Save public housing. When do we want it? Now. So we need to tell people what's going on. A lot of people don't realise that the state government intends to tear down every single high-rise public housing estate across Melbourne. That announcement got two minutes of publicity in the media and then it vanished out of the media. So I'm finding a lot of people don't know that it's happening. And there are even some people on the high-rise estates that don't know that this is happening. So we've got a task before us to build this campaign. And I'd like to first say, I'd like to acknowledge that we're standing on stolen land, land of the Rundry Warrun. Um, and I'd like to recognise that the destruction of public housing in the inner city, and particularly in Fitzroy, has also made it difficult to keep the community together, keep First Nations community together. This was something I was talked about a number of years ago by Mariki owners of First Nations activists here, who said one of the most important things is for mob to be together in order to for people to keep their culture and, and keep um, the cultural lineages going. And, but instead, people have been dispersed because of the cost of housing in inner-city Melbourne. So there's many, many aspects that the destruction of public housing causes. And 
We're just at the beginning of the campaign at the moment. Now we've got almost 100 people here today, which is great considering that we've got bad weather. Um, we've also, some of us have been very involved in the campaign to stop genocide in Palestine and other campaigns as well as this one. But this campaign, we want to build because you have to start from letting people know what the government is doing and then giving out information, starting to rally the troops, organising protests so that we can give people confidence to save the flats, save the high-rise flats. Because if a lot of people say to the government that they're not going to move and the broader community says we're going to back them because public housing is in everybody's interest, not just the ten existing tenants, but it's in the interest of the entire society. That if we're going to group together to fight to stop the demolition of the flats, the government won't be able to get away with demolishing the flats. So that's got to be our aim, everybody. So every campaign starts small, then builds big. Um, all campaigns start that way. So we need to stay together. So at the end of this rally, we need to stick around, swap contact details, um, different tenants on different estates have a chance to meet each other. So we need to build this campaign. At the moment, the government is trying to get away with a trust us strategy. So the trust us means that the, the line they've spun to the media and, and they're trying to spin to tenants is that the high-rise flats are past their use-by dates. Nothing can be done. It's inevitable that they've got to go. And so that anyone who says, no, they don't need to be pulled down, is regarded as just someone who's a has-been who doesn't know what they're talking about. But the government has not presented one shred of evidence that the buildings need to be demolished. Not one shred of evidence. So if they're not prepared to provide any evidence, that means that that's not the reason they're trying to demolish the flats. The reason they're trying to demolish the flats is because they want to hand over this public land to private developers. That's what they're trying to do. They're handing over land to private developers to build mostly private flats. There's no guarantee that tenants will be allowed to return. There's no guarantee. And then for tenants who do get to return, there's no guarantee that it will be public housing that they'll return to. It'll probably be community housing, which many, many people are starting to experience now, that it's nowhere near as good as public housing. You don't have the same level of rights. It's um, pseudo, pseudo sort of housing. So we, we want public housing, we want public land to remain in public hands. We don't want the developers to touch this. We want to keep this as public land. And there's evidence from overseas, from France, where public housing high-rise estates have been refurbished one flat at a time, which means people just move out while their flat is being refurbished. Then they can move back in and so the community stays intact. Because one of the big things that happens when people are forcibly relocated means that 
people lose their communities. And I know of some people who have been forcibly relocated uh, to the outskirts of Melbourne and they've been relocated to areas where there's no bulk billing doctors. Their community isn't around them. And so especially for older people or people who need extra support, it actually shortens their life. It shortens their life um, if you're you know, forced out of your homes when you've lived in those homes for many decades. So we don't want that. We need to fight to keep public housing. We need to fight to keep the high-rise estates. We need to fight to keep the estates. Put up your hands if you're with the fight to keep the estates. That's a commitment we need.
That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. The two reminders, the motorcade for Palestine today, 23rd of December, Saturday, is meeting at the Faulkner Cemetery before driving down Sydney Road at 12. Also today, Save Our Public Housing rally, Saturday the 23rd of December, 2pm, behind 140 Brunswick Street Tower. More information 0447 506 625. That's 0447 506 625. The Sunday Rally for Palestine at the State Library steps will be on again at 12, according to the APAN website. Tune in next week for the second in Solidarity Breakfast, second summer season program. Talk to you then. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of the breath fades with the light I think about Loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Memphis Lower the curtain down on right I got no time Under the Milky Way tonight Wish I knew what you were looking for Might have known what you would find 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.